Chapter Number Nine of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mowat. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter Nine Lost Gifts. The shadowy light of morning had merged and brought day, but all was quiet in Sylvie's little chamber. Her mother stole softly in and found her sleeping, but ever and anon she stirred uneasily, uttering faint moans. Her breathing was labored, her long hair, loosened by her unquiet movements, swept over the couch in wild disorder. Her arms were tossed above her head. She had flung aside the bed covering as though its weight oppressed her. Madame de la Roche watched her for a few moments, then hastened to inform her husband, almost with an air of exultation, at this proof of her own sagacity, that her sad predictions were surely verified. He received the communication with merry disbelief, and said if Sylvie slept she was doing well, and that breakfast need no longer be delayed, as he had business on hand. The business in question was simply to get rid of a portion of the sum that remained out of his daughter's scanty store. Shortly after the meal was over, Ursule came to inquire after her beloved little friend, but learning that she had not yet waked, noiselessly withdrew. Matthieu, who was hovering about the entry, greatly troubled at not hearing Sylvie's voice, though her regular hour for practicing had long since arrived, ventured to accost the mantua-maker as she passed. A look of satisfaction, pleasant to see, chased the expression of disappointment from his thin, pinched countenance when he knew that the gentle songstress was still slumbering, and he magnanimously replied that, although he always felt restless and comfortless when he missed her singing of a morning, he wished she might sleep all day. It seemed likely that his generous desire would be gratified, for when Maitre Bourgeot came to the door a couple of hours later, Madame de la Roche, who wandered in and out of Sylvie's room every few minutes, informed him that she was still sleeping, but very uncomfortably, and it was her opinion that she was seriously ill. If this suggestion had emanated from any one but Madame de la Roche, Maitre Beaujol would have felt concern, but he was so much accustomed to her dark side view of events and her constant cry of wolf that, without noticing the alarming conclusion at which she had arrived, he whisperingly charged her not to disturb her daughter, closed the door without a sound, and went away, content that his pupil was resting and gaining new strength. Prompted by the feminine spirit of contradiction, and further instigated by her dislike to acknowledge Maitre Beaujol's authority, Madame de la Roche returned to Sylvie's bedside, and, as her daughter's head rolled backward and forward on the pillow, stooped over and spoke to her. Sylvie gave no sign of hearing, but her head still swayed to and fro, the black tresses coiling and tangling with emotion. Her mother, with rapidly increasing agitation, called her in a louder tone. Still no answer. She took her hands, 
But even a violent pressure produced no effect. Then, seriously frightened, she shook the slumbering maiden, but wholly failed to rouse her. Almost beside herself, the panic-stricken woman rushed downstairs to Ursule and implored her to hasten to Sylvie, who was probably dying. Ursule waited not to ask questions or to ponder upon Madame de la Roche's unconquerable tendency to exaggeration, but with rapid steps outstripped the summoner and stood by the sufferer's bed. Sylvie's disheveled hair, the restless movement of her head, and her pain-betoking attitude were somewhat startling, but her soul was prepared for so much worse that, with a feeling of relief, she smiled at her own forgetfulness of Madame de la Roche's idiosyncrasy, which had occasioned her such a moment of anguish. The self-tormentor was at her side, whispering, "'Try to wake her. I could not. Try, and you will see she does not wake.' The sounder she sleeps, the better, replied Ursule, repressing her vexation. Sleep is a panacea for all ills. It would be very inconsiderate, very wrong to disturb her. She saw that Madame de la Roche entertained a different opinion, and, partly to guard Sylvie, partly to divert her thoughts from their present sad direction, Ursule sat down to the work upon which she had been employed when Madame de la Roche burst into her room, and which she still held in her hand. Madame de la Roche also resumed her needle, and Ursule chatted so cheerfully, though in a low tone, that the dispirited mother was gradually restored to a state of tolerable calmness. They were sitting at the window in the larger apartment, neither heard a faint exclamation, a sort of a choked cry, which issued from behind Sylvie's curtain. It was repeated more audibly, and in an instant both were by Sylvie's bedside. She was sitting up, her lips apart, her large eyes frightfully dilated, actually glaring with horror. As Ursule bent over her, she again made a violent effort to speak, but a hoarse murmur was the only sound that broke from her lips. "'Sylvie, what is it, my darling?' asked the dressmaker, disguising her consternation. The young girl looked at her piteously, and with great difficulty replied in a stifled whisper, "'I have lost my voice. I cannot speak louder.' Ursule glanced at the mother, who stood at the foot of the bed, weeping and wringing her hands, though she had not heard those fatal words." "'Do not agitate yourself, my dear girl,' answered Ursule soothingly. "'You will be able to speak in a few minutes. "'At the worst, you have only taken a cold, which was very natural. "'Do not let a transient inconvenience discompose you.' Sylvie pressed her hand thankfully, and replied in the same painful whisper, "'I felt as though I should never speak again, "'as though I had lost my voice forever.' "'What does she say? What does she whisper? "'Why does she not speak out and let her poor afflicted mother hear her?' "'cried Madame de la Roche testily. "'She has taken a cold. It is nothing, nothing at all,' replied Ursule. "'She is too hoarse to speak loudly. "'When a person is suffering from hoarseness, "'it is very wrong for them to force the voice or to use it at all. "'Lie down, Sylvie, and do not try to speak one word.' 
You will soon be better. Pray do not go on in that frantic manner, Madame de la Roche, or you will excite the child and increase her fever. Pray be quiet. Increase her fever? She has a fever then? But I did not say long ago that she would have. Did I not expect it? It has been coming on all this time, and soon it will increase. It is a mercy if we do not lose her, a mercy which it is in vain for us to hope for. Ursule almost lost her temper at this ill-judged but characteristic speech, and could not help reflecting that, after all, there was as much justice as severity in Maitre Beaujeu's rebukes, which were never more needed than at this moment. As if her thoughts had summoned him, his knock, though much softer than usual, was heard at the door. The mother flew to open it, exclaiming, "'It's all over with us. It has come at last. Oh, my poor Sylvie, my poor Sylvie!' Beaujeu hurried past her into the inner chamber. Sylvie turned to him with a failing attempt to smile, and, stretching out her hands, murmured, "'It is nothing. Ursule says I will be better soon.' "'Dear child, why do you whisper?' gasped her teacher. "'I cannot speak. I have lost my voice.' Beaujeu's violin dropped and would have fallen to the ground had it not been caught by Ursule. He covered his face with his hands, and a groan that sounded like the sundering of heart-strings burst from his lips. "'It is nothing, only a cold, only a temporary calamity. In a week she will be herself,' cried Ursule consolingly. "'A week!' and I have just made a regular engagement for her, which commences before the close of this very week, and she is expected to sing every week for the next three months. If she is not able to fill the contract, they will be obliged to engage someone else to take her place. My dear child, my dear, dear child. The old man kissed her forehead again and again, and held her hot hands in his, and smoothed back her matted hair and looked tenderly into her flushed face. The brilliant woman, who had excited his wonder and admiration last night, had vanished. She was again his little, humble, dependent, unfortunate Sylvie. She did not seem to notice or comprehend the intelligence he had just given. With eyes preternaturally bright, she glanced around the room in search of something, then stretched her arm towards the little table and tried to grasp a book. Ursule handed it to her. It was her Bible. From between the leaves, she took a withered flower. No one present recognized the faded sprig of heliotrope. Beaujol alone might have known from whence it came, but his mind was too full of distress for reminiscences that could have given the key to this action. She muttered incoherently as she held the scentless, colorless flower before her eyes, but the few words that could be distinguished conveyed no meaning. She had become delirious. "'I must summon a doctor at once,' said Beaujol, rising hastily. "'Keep her quiet.' Gurusul, and you, madame, if you have the slightest consideration for your child, you will not distress her and increase the fever from which she is suffering by letting her see your grief. 
if Madame de la Roche made any effort to act upon this suggestion, it was a vain attempt, and Ursule, finding that Sylvie, in brief moments of lucidity, looked at her mother inquiring and with a troubled expression, insisted upon the latter's withdrawing to her own apartment. She yielded, sobbing out, and it is come to this i am not to take care of my own child every one is to have charge of her and to regulate her but i maitre beaujeu soon returned with dr Sylvestre, the young partner of a physician of high standing who being personally unable to attend to his numerous patients allowed this young assistant to study his profession by practicing among the poorer classes, taking or saving lives as the case may be. Dr. Suvestra examined the patient with genuine interest, and an assumption of importance and gravity by which he expected to inspire confidence and atone for the absence of gray hairs. Ursule replied to his numerous questions, for Madame de la Roche was either incapable of doing so or chose to remain obstinately silent. He casually asked, Are you her mother, Madame? Then the weeping woman started forward and replied eagerly, No, no, that she is not. I am her mother, but they give me no power over her. I am nobody. I must see her die and not come to her aid. "'Since you are her mother, madame,' replied the doctor with severity, "'I must tell you that this violent ebullition is very harmful to my patient. "'I shall be obliged to order you from the apartment unless you are perfectly composed.' "'Poor madame de la Roche felt that the doctor was also in league against her, "'and combining with the others to take her child out of her hands.' Dr. Suvestra, without again noticing her, gave his directions to Ursule, wrote a prescription, and charged her not to allow Sylvie to be subjected to the least excitement. Maitre Beaujau left the room with him. "'Is she very ill, doctor?' he inquired. "'I fear that she is. The fever has evidently been produced by exposure to cold and wet.' when her highly sensitive nervous system was in a state of violent excitement. But her voice! Will she lose her voice? I have not been able to judge the extent to which her voice is affected, for, as you saw, she did not reply to any of my questions. It will not be possible for her to be well enough to keep an engagement to sing in a few days. Do you think it will? Dr. Sylvestre lifted his eyebrows, as though he were regarding a man not particularly sound in mind. Decidedly not. Beaujol had not the heart, the courage, to go at once to Monsieur Legrand and tell him that he must seek someone to fill Sylvie's place. He absolved himself from that hard duty until the morrow. That morrow brought no favorable change to Sylvie, her fever still raged, her voice sank lower and lower, her words, unconnected and wild, were hardly audible at all. Ursule, unsolicited, filled the post of nurse. 
Madame de la Roche became more useless than ever. Her husband spent most of his time in trying to prove that this illness could be nothing of importance, that she had simply caught a cold when she was heated. He had often taken cold in the same way himself, he added. He was certain she would be restored in a few days. He always was, and as for her being a little out of her mind, fever always made him light-headed. "'And folly always keeps you so,' muttered Beaujau gruffly. It was now absolutely necessary that Monsieur Legrand should be apprised of the calamity that had befallen the young singer. Maître Beaujau's services had been included in Sylvie's engagement. Though his skill as a performer on the violin was incontestable, his talents had not yet received that public recognition which constitutes fame, and he doubted whether, apart from Sylvie, he could obtain a hearing. He made as light as possible of her illness to Monsieur Legrand, assuring him that it was but a cold, brought on by walking in a pouring rain, owing to the disappearance of their conveyance. The indisposition of Mademoiselle de la Roche is a serious calamity at this moment, when she has created such an extraordinary sensation, and everyone is on the qui-vive to hear her. Her fortune is made. Are you sure she cannot appear? Could she not venture upon a single song, or repeat the Semiramide with Le Blanche on Thursday? It will not be possible. How vexatious! This is very discomposing. I shall be obliged to engage someone else, but her really wonderful vocalization will render the public very difficult to please. I trust she will recover shortly. One of the disadvantages of our profession is that a a favorite be not kept constantly before the audience she is soon forgotten and it is always hard to rekindle an enthusiasm which has once died out i will apprise you the instant she is convalescent maitre beaujau lingered and hesitated nothing had been said about his expected performance Legrand was too much engrossed by the unlooked-for disappointment of being deprived of Sylvie to think of the interest of her tutor. At last Beaujau compelled himself to say, with as much indifference as possible, "'Allow me to ask whether my services will be needed on Thursday, as before arranged, or whether my engagement depends on that of Mademoiselle de la Roche.' Monsieur Legrand was too admirable a diplomatist not to remember that, as Maitre Beaujau controlled his pupil, and his pupil would be eagerly sought after by the public, the most politic compliment he could pay the master was to assume that he was held in high consideration, wholly independent of his valuable scholar. "'What a question!' exclaimed the wily principal, with feigned surprise. 
Of course, your engagement holds good without the least reference to that of Mademoiselle de la Roche. We could not dispense with you on any account. By the by, allow me to pay you that two hundred francs due. These bad tidings concerning Madame de la Roche have made me very forgetful. He counted out the money and took Beaujeu's receipt. The music teacher withdrew in the most grateful mood that he had ever experienced. But what was he to do with Sylvie's hundred francs? If he delivered them to the father, they would be certainly squandered. With the mother, they would be equally unsafe, for she would yield them to her husband. Sylvie could have no voice in the matter at the present. No voice. The words, casually used, gave him a sharp pang. He determined to take Ursule into his confidence and abide by her advice. As she was always at Sylvie's side, he was obliged to request her to grant him a brief interview in her own room. Had she been less absorbed by the state of her beloved charge, the old maid would have suffered no little trepidation in consenting to this strange petition. As it was, there was no room in her mind for thoughts of herself. When Beaujau made known his dilemma, she strongly urged him to retain the money without making any allusion to its having been paid, adding that if it once passed into the hands of Monsieur de la Roche, it would melt as surely as though it were thrown into a fiery furnace. But Sylvie must not lack any comfort, answered Beaujau. I will take care that she does not, replied Ursule but her spendthrift father probably has something left of that last hundred francs, the larger portion of which he has amused his mind by throwing away. I will insist upon his expending what remains upon necessary medicines. It will be so much saved. Ursule found herself mistaken. When Monsieur de la Roche returned home that very day, it was not with empty hands. He asked his wife for a dish, then daintily uncovered the fanciful basket that he carried, and heaped the coarse piece of crockery which was placed on the table with luscious hothouse peaches. Now let me have your largest jar filled with water, demanded he, in a tone of pleasant excitement. The fractured brown jug was silently placed before him. In that he carefully inserted the stems of a costly bouquet. Next, he unfolded a paper parcel and displayed the latest new novel in three volumes by Eugene Sue. You see, I've done my part towards taking care of the dear child. Those peaches are just the thing for her to relish, and she delights in flowers. This bouquet will charm her. This novel I mean to read aloud to her myself to amuse her. It is said to be a thrilling narrative, and we shall enjoy all the marvelous incidents and hairbreadth escapes together. The basket is so pretty that I thought I would buy that too. It may be of use to hold your work, Marguerite. And he tossed a flimsy wicker basket towards his wife. Ursule, who had been impatiently watching the self-satisfied prodigal, now said in a tone full of quiet irony 
I really congratulate you upon the felicitous choice of your purchases. The peaches will probably spoil before Sylvie is able to taste one. The doctor happened to notice the bouquets, with which she was so liberally supplied last night, and ordered all flowers to be removed from the room, as hurtful to his patient. So these must go. Anywhere you please, out the window if you like, unless, indeed, you think it was worth spending the sum they cost to bestow them upon me. As for the novel, she could neither listen to nor comprehend a single page at present, and when she is convalescent, I promise you Dr. Suvestra will not allow any work as exciting as the tales of Eugene Sue to be perused in her hearing. Of the basket, I wish you joy, Madame de la Roche, though you have a rather more substantial one at your side. Monsieur de la Roche looked blank for an instant, but quickly recovered. Ursule went on mercilessly. Now, will you have the goodness to give me five francs to pay for the medicine that Dr. Suvestra charged me to procure? Five francs for medicines? What a sum! exclaimed Everard, drawing out his purse, which was evidently in a state of collapse. Really, I, I believe, I am not quite certain. Yes, it is so indeed. I have but two francs left. Is Sylvie to go without her medicine, then? asked Ursule, with tantalizing coolness. Oh, of course not, certainly not. That is out of the question, replied de la Roche, wincing. It is equally out of the question to procure it without money, she returned sharply. Then we must borrow. That is our only resource, he answered, with returning hopefulness. Let me see. Maitre Bourgeot cannot be afraid to trust us, for there will be a hundred francs passing through his hands for Sylvie, and he can reimburse himself. By the by, I wonder why Monsieur Legrand has not paid up yet. I have a great mind to call upon him, but it does not do to let such people know that one is out of funds. It is better to apply to Bourgeot. I would rather not ask him myself, but you will do it for me, my good, kind Ursule. You are always so ready, so obliging, so friendly. Ursule interrupted his flattery with, For her sake, I undertake to arrange that matter. And she did. She arranged with Beaujou to retain Sylvie's money, yet to allow as much as was needed from time to time, seemingly in the shape of a loan. Quite a masterly stroke, by which Monsieur de la Roche was outwitted without suspecting her generalship. End of chapter 9